Hello and welcome to Cherry Stem number 27, Scientific Interpretation, Spirituality. And we're going to be talking about holonomic brain theory and neoclassical interpretation of physics and how it all connects to consciousness and spirituality and all that good stuff. And this podcast is brought to you by listeners like yourself. Please visit patreon.com slash Cherry. And check out the Challenger tier in particular if you'd like to hang out with us after the podcast and discuss relevant information that came up uh, to you during the podcast or anything else you may want, as well as super secret patron-exclusive content. 
that is only available to patrons. Did I mention? It's patron only. So check out <laughs> patreon.com slash Cherry and help keep this podcast on the air and coming at you more frequently than once a month. Um, so today we're talking uh, to and slash interviewing a little bit uh, author of the paper, classical interpretation physics. <laughs> so patreon.com slash seven sage secrets. Uh, where all of your uh, three published papers are available, I believe, or free for public consumption. I uh, currently only have two that are in peer-reviewed. Uh, so the uh, the name of the paper is the history of the neoclassical interpretation of quantum relativistic physics. Um, because what we want to talk about today is um, <laughs> everything. Uh, we want <laughs> the universe and everything. As, as we know the, it. Exactly. This is the uh, this is the forty two speech. <laughs> um, so there is. Uh, I will start at the beginning and and start talking about that paper and kind of give an overview. Though the paper is you know, pretty long and, and, um, and I don't want to just focus on it. But the um, what we're we're going to talk about is intersection of physics uh, with ideas of consciousness, uh, the um, neurological um, correlates of consciousness, which basically that means is whenever whenever you're starting to talk about consciousness, there's a variety of ways that, that there's a lot of language around. The, the idea is specifically, can we map what we see with the electricity moving around, the chemicals moving around, uh, and, you know, the waves, et cetera, that are occurring, because there's also things like you know, alpha, beta, gamma, waves, et cetera. Um, can we map all of those to what we experience as consciousness? So as a starting point, you do have to get to physics. Uh, and and there, are, there are questions of, can we describe this in a, in a kind of a mechanical fashion? Now, one of the first ways that people tend to try to, to describe this from a physics standpoint um, is to rely on the fuzziness and weirdness of mechanics. I take a completely different tack. Uh, I don't like, um, as a matter of fact, I've been, I've been spending a number of years uh, pointing out that there are, are alternative interpretations that require no fuzzy magic anything uh, that are completely mechanical and completely um, well, the word that a lot of times that they use is, well, this is just counterintuitive. And in my mind, that is just um, the same excuse that you'll find in, in religion. Every time that you start to point out something rational, they'll start to say that God is beyond you, spirituality is beyond you, or they'll just try to uh, talk you down by, you know, who are you to question all these millions of people? And that's always the way that people hide the the, the huge chunks of faith that they put into places where they don't have a mechanical. Now that's a necessity. Whenever you think about it, any one of us who is, uh, when you look at a TV, you kind of know that there are, there, you know, there's, all, if you know a little bit about electronics, et cetera, you know, there's an infrared thing in your remote control and there's some circuitry inside it and it goes and there's some circuitry inside the TV. And, but and do something you really... about tubes, maybe. Well, there's no, yeah. You know, like well, something that's, that's in the older, TV. That's actually older, older TV. TVs. Yeah. Well, now it's, yeah, like. Um, but the point crystal, is that, so that you, you have a, an idea that is, there's all of these huge things that you fill in with something that is basically faith. You don't know it yourself. 
You just have an abstraction that, and a faith that something in there works, and it works in a way that is, you know, that is rational. Uh, but um, whenever we start to talk about physics, um, there are there are a variety of ways in which you can describe things, the exact same things, and uh, and do it mathematically. And the way in which you describe what the math means can be very different. That's why we have uh, people are familiar with the idea of having the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, the many worlds interpretation, and most recently people have been uh, remembering pilot wave or uh, De Broglie-Bohm theory. So mm -hmm. it's also known as a Bohmian mechanics. It's only just recently come back into the public consciousness field of physics because of the fact that they now have a set of uh, macro level experiments that prove that we no longer need any kind of magical uh, ideations around the way that particles interact. The particle and the wave duality. Right, the whole wave-particle duality. Uh, there's, a, there's a quote well, by... Well, um, for some people it may not even be clear as to why something particle and a wave it. So, what is what is a wave? What? Is okay. Well, then that. See, unfortunately, I didn't want to go there because That's once fine. you start to talk about waves, then you have to get to the point. You have to back all the way up to relativity. So, right. I mean, you take it wherever you want. Essentially. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, well, um, let me let me just flesh out this thing about different interpretations because this is something that right. a lot of people are familiar with. Their idea that they know there's different interpretations. Of the same physics. mathematical things, and so that idea, uh, they they un, they can they can get their head around uh -huh. that that the math doesn't change, but our idea of what the math represents, what the experiments represent, can be interpreted differently and mean very different things, and that is something that is a that is very core to what I need to talk about because. Uh -huh. uh, um, most of the time, whenever whenever uh, people would start to talk about any difference, any question of relativity theory, the idea of there being an alternative um, interpretation of that is not something that's well known. Mm -hmm. That is not something that's known at all. It's part of history. That's part of what this paper is about, that right. it, uh, is this alternative interpretation. But just like uh, the mechanistic, rational version of uh, of quantum mechanics, uh, is only now coming to the surface because new experiments show us uh, how these things work. Um, the same thing can be true of this alternative and forgotten um, interpretation of relativistic physics. So, so you'll have to you'll have to excuse us as we we have to talk about the grounding of physics and how it's been used in you know in the past, etc. Uh, because there is a there's a you know there's a big gap between. Um, the way that consciousness is typically handled um, and the way that people think of whenever you talk about consciousness and physics and, you know, and there's the people kind of have a binary view about it. It's either, oh, there's no need for any but, of that. That's just all a bunch of, you well, know, Well, it's kind of like the crap. soul thing is like, have scientists found what is a soul, but also the same for neuroscientists have, neuro, that's been a question addressed to neuroscience and psychology. Have we scientifically found you know, the, the seed of consciousness? Definitely a question. And so, and so I, I spend spend time in you know in a group like for for instance there's an individual who's uh, uh, the head of the National Science Foundation when they first introduced uh, the 
and he he was responsible for the introduction of back back propagation in networks. So, and that's that's really where neural networks finally started to take off and become something that was even useful at all. There was a period of time where people believed that neural networks couldn't work at all, and that was the orthodoxy in uh, in computer programming and in AI is that neural networks could not work. There were books written about it. Um, and now, of course, they're proven that they're, you know, the, the way that they work now, which is talking with a lot of other people who are, you know, uh, like, one. okay, so one of the other individuals who are in the idea of, of quantum mechanics and, uh, and the idea of spirit or consciousness, mm -hmm. et cetera, is Stuart Hameroff. Uh, and he's uh, the name of that model that he's been working is uh, it's a sometimes they call it the Hameroff Penrose model because it's um, get Penrose's first name. Uh, I don't know, let's do that. But he, uh, the two of them were working on two aspects of how to get from physics to uh, consciousness, and so there, so he's also in that group. And uh, there's a, so there's a variety of people who are talking, um. About these topics and attempting to find some sort of uh, consensus, and then uh, and there are these there there are people who are who will try to insist that oh no, no uh, there's no there's no need to explain anything additional there's no need for quantum effects to to, to explain consciousness well then that, those are people who are extremely uh, there there it absolutely does require additional mechanics to do certain tasks so there's not quite a, here's the thing a lot of people who use um the current developments ai don't understand them just like any programmer does whenever you are doing programming you rely upon those mm -hmm. things which were created uh, at a much lower level and you can you you can spend you know you write a thousand lines of code and never touch anything that has to do with addressing the hardware. Never touch anything that has to do with writing anything to the screen because you rely upon other code to do that. And so, I think other programmers definitely relate to that more than rich people in terms of how much how many layers, faith in... Right, how many layers of faith that you have to have in, you, in as, prior tools. As per earlier definition. So, so yeah, so that's the point is that there are, are, there are these requirements that you simply have faith in the tools and, and, and interpretations and understandings that happened before you, but that also means that sometimes those tools are developed in a way that um, nobody necessarily understands. In other words, uh, part of how we started making neural networks is just by copying some of the things we noticed happening in the brain. And um, and so there is a, a, there's, a, there's a lot of ignorance about the mechanics of exactly what is happening mm -hmm. uh, in neural networks? There is, um, in other words, even even when you get down to the pedantic level of okay, well, this causes you know this one little area to polarize in that way. Even that isn't necessarily an understanding of exactly how the information is uh, processed. Like for instance, you can uh, there there's something called uh, Babbage's difference engine. Or, uh, where it's all made up of all all of these gears and, and uh, that and, and it allows it to it was one of the first mechanical computers ever made. You could go and you could understand exactly what a gear is. You could understand exactly how this gear maps to this gear, and you can see all of it happening right in front of you. There's nothing ambiguous about it. However, you may not still understand the wider picture of exactly how 
isolation. And mm -hmm. that's what I'm talking about when it comes to networks, the level of not understanding how the calculation works. And it's related to holography. And hmm. so. Right, all these things are connected. Yes, it's all connected, <laughs> but you know, we're talking about the nature of everything. And it's the 42 it's a, show. <laughs> it is, it's the 42 show. So you'll have to, you'll have to excuse if we don't, we're going to be gone to a lot of different fields. So back to, we have to start at the beginning, the neoclassical interpretation. <laughs> mm -hmm. why, is it, why, why, why did I put out this, this uh, paper in the first place? If my goal is eventually to get to explaining how consciousness occurs in a mechanical way, as I said before, so the first uh, problem you have is interpretation. And... Um, and you have, we, we're familiar, I've already covered that, that there are interpretations of quantum mechanics. Well, here's the thing that uh, I think is very important to point out to people is that, uh, let me find, let me find this, uh, this quote from, um, uh, from Feynman. It's this, this really great quote from, hold on just a second here. I'm not going to be able to find it that quickly, so I'll, I'll just I'll just paraphrase and I'll, I'll find it here in a moment. But uh, basically, Feynman was trying to explain when he first started in one of his uh, lectures in quantum mechanics. He was explaining that the dual slit experiment is something we absolutely the effects that we are that we are seeing happen in the dual slit experiment are absolutely impossible to explain in any kind of rational mechanical form that we would normally call classical. That's it's part of his lectures. And I'll, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll you know, drop a bunch of different quotes, et cetera, in the low bar or something. And uh, that's simply not true anymore. Uh, there's some, when we uh, started having something, it's uh, Yves Coudet uh, is one of the individuals who first started these uh, experiments called Walker experiments or silicon oil drop experiments, where basically by creating a a small plate that is constantly um, agitated, so it has a uh, it, it has general motion to it. You can then take a droplet of this. They used uh, silicon mm -hmm. um, oil, and if you drop the droplet on there, it will bounce indefinitely, never rejoining with the rest of the fluid. And the way that it explores the corral uh, is is a a way to describe all of the different things that occur in quantum mechanics. In other words, it is the wave that it produces by bouncing against the surface then determines the way that it will be, it, it, how its next, lens next bounce will, um, what its outcome will be. And it's dependent upon such extraordinarily uh, just huge numbers of variables. It's literally impossible unless you know, like, um, and where the, the the location of every particle you know everywhere is and what it's doing at a certain a moment, you could not possibly predict the outcome of how this droplet is going to bounce. And that's called chaotic determinism. In other words, there is a very specific mechanic. There's nothing fuzzy. There's no such thing as random occurring here, but it looks random. And the only mathematics that is useful to describe the outcome is based on probability mm -hmm. but there is no probability underlying those mathematics so therefore if you do express. if you confuse the mathematics and what it is that those mathematics represent then you will have a bad picture of reality the math is limited because our knowledge is limited so that's what's re really important here so 
So that's where pilot wave theory comes in, is that there is um, this idea of deterministic mechanics. So all of the magical ideas that you, you hear about in quantum mechanics, all of the, the spooky action at a distance, all of those things can actually be explained in a, uh, in a deterministic fashion. So in other words, there isn't uh, the idea of random then. If, if pilot wave is the, is the, the um, interpretation of quantum mechanics, that is the superior one, the one that's the closer to ma match to reality. And, and the reason it is, I mean, I would definitely recommend you check out the videos for yourself, but it essentially has one single particle, aka the drop, that explores the corral in a pattern that is just like the double slit experiment pattern of a wave. Right. So well, the is, double slit is basically they, they have replicated the double slit experiment with but these with droplets oil. as well, yeah. and the, the particle it's both a particle and a wave, and the and the droplet ends up going through one or the other based upon the chaotic determinism. In other words, there is a there's tiny subtle effects that make it go through one slit or the other, mm -hmm. and not both. But the wave that is guiding it, the wave that it created just before going through, travels through both slits, and therefore when it comes to the other side, because that wave is guiding the way that it will continue to move after that fact though that wave that is that is part of the picture of, of determining where the particle will go uh, which was created by the particle bouncing on the surface that will have an interference pattern that alters the likelihood of where the, the droplet will end up and so you have all of these explanations for all everything that seems like you know wave particle duality and it can be explained in entirely you can discard absolutely everything spooky weird or random in quantum mechanics and dis describe all of it with determinism mm -hmm. uh, and so that's something that uh, that's why it's rising to the fore again because we no longer need to conceive of reality as this um, th that it's random at, at the at the bottom level uh, and and in fact, if you're if you spent time programming, a lot of times you you think you you whenever you start really thinking about random number generators and try, and trying to create a random number, you begin to realize there's no such thing as random. Uh, and uh, it, it's one of those things that you that you realize is just a it's just a shortcut for the human brain. Random isn't something that really exists in reality. Um, so anyhow, so that so if if pilot wave is and it is if you if you look close enough, uh, if it is the the one that matches reality better, uh, so we get to get do away with all of the uh, all of the magic and and we can explain those things in a different way. So that's one of the things that I'm talking about here is explaining consciousness from a perspective of even determinism, chaotic determinism, but determinism nonetheless, mm -hmm. purely mechanical and not relying on any kind of uh, outlandish or uh, non-mechanical explanation, anything that that has kind of that fill in the, the 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 middle area with magic that we tend to do whenever we're explaining things that are very complex. Mm -hmm. So, how is that done? Well, then, furthermore, we have to back up. So we, you know, you you brought up the whole wave thing. Yeah. In 1905 mm -hmm. is where we first allowed the magical things to start to happen in physics. Uh, and upon, not in a fun way. <laughs> and not in a fun way. And that is that there was already, before Einstein published in 1905 and was given primacy for special relativity, Poincaré uh, was also working on the electrodynamical part. So mm -hmm. special relativity is broken into two parts. First is the kinematics. So everything that you typically know about uh, special relativity, which is 
time dilation, length contraction, uh, and the appearance of light speed constancy, all of these things were created by someone else that he directly imported. There's no argument about that. There's no question about that. There's a lot of ignorance about that, but mm -hmm. it directly came from Lorenz. Okay, so he, there's one, there's, it's one step removed, and Einstein was relying upon that because what he was doing was then adding to that. So he starts off with the kinematical part, and then he goes on to the electrodynamical part. That is his contribution uh, to, that is added upon Lorentz's kinematics that he explains at the beginning. So uh, kinematics is basically the physics of motion. And whereas the uh, electro electrodynamics, well, that's you know what it's, it's the electromagnetism within this system of looking at the world that came from Lorentz. I was about to say, so you're you're saying that the theory of relativity isn't uh, something completely new that came from Einstein? Absolutely not. And he he came from a lot of prior art, and where the, even the electrodynamical part it relies upon Maxwell's equations. So and can I just sour it even more with the fact that E equals m c square is also just a shortened version of, of Poincaré's work? Well, no, Poincaré would have gotten uh, he would have received primacy for. Uh, the electrodynamical part as well, because he was also working, he was working with Lorentz. Mm -hmm. uh, Einstein wasn't directly working with Lorentz until after the publication, even though he was using Lorentz's work. Um, so so there was just there was just this small uh, issue with Poincaré that uh, uh, attempting to publish a correction to his papers, mm -hmm. and it didn't go through. But though he had the sent that he had sent in the, the the correction before Einstein's publication. It, the correction didn't go through until after Einstein's publication. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, chronologically, you can't really say. Uh, you know, all we have is is public published dates, etc. When it comes to primacy for that aspect of relativity. So, why do we talk about all that? Because Einstein's idea of how relativity works and how Poincaré and Lorentz's idea of how uh, relativity works are two different interpretations. Both of them. Are relativistic. One, however, has the ether, and the other does not. And so this is a point that uh, that you have to. Uh, it, it takes a lot of discussion, and so I'm going to have to to take a little bit of a, a shortcut here. But I just want to mm -hmm. focus on the fact that that it is two different interpretations. And where did all of the uh, the everything that came from, you know, the idea of uh, light speed constancy, where apparent, where light seems to travel the same speed in all frames of reference, that came from Lorentz. Uh, the um, and then the, of course the contraction and the time dilation. So all of these things came from Lorentz, but his idea of a fourth dimension was he was simply using a math tool. Okay, mm -hmm. dimensions are like a uh, you can, it, it's a like it can be used as a way to have a yeah you got x y z Texas. right and then and then t for time mm -hmm. now what he was using the fourth dimension for was to st to store faulty perspectives because his intention was that he was modeling an illusion created by by an object's motion through, through ether. ether. Okay. Now, keep in mind the exact same math describes both relativity theory and this theory in um, in ether, and uh, I, I I kind of wanted to 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 go off uh, uh, on a Would tangent, you? but I, I think I'm gonna 
with Which all the Which is usually uh, associated with, with Tesla and his right, awesome right. feats. Yes. So and of many course, yeah. other um, people like Maxwell, et cetera. Well, and yeah, so the Maxwell's equations, Maxwell's equations were a description of inviscid fluid mechanics. It was a description of the way things moved in a fluid. That's how he created those, uh, those equations that we are still using today. Uh, and the, uh, and uh, all of the ideas that, you know, what Lorentz was coming, what he was describing with the central calculation. Okay. So the, so everything about relativity relies upon that those very central calculations, which you, you hear as the Lorentz transform, mm -hmm. but even more central than that is the change factor, the factor of change, how much something changes, where did that come from, what, what why it, does it exist, what was the mental you know state? And, why is the why is something changing? What yeah, is happening? What is you know it. what is it what is occurring and what is why? occurring is he was describing an object moving through a medium. And um, I guess I do need to, to, to kind of uh, do a little bit here because otherwise it's the whole rest of it kind of relies upon this understanding that there is a fluid dynamical um, description and interpretation of all that we have today. In other words, it is you don't have to change the math to have these subtleties where more information is available. So let me say right off the bat, more information is available in Lorentz's interpretation than is available in Einstein and Minkowski's interpretation because and, and it is important to understand it is Einstein and Minkowski's interpretation because it is only after Minkowski published in 1908 uh, that we have the idea of space and time being conjoined. It's an it's a uh, it's an absolutely um, for for Einstein's idea of a fourth dimension and the way that, well, it wasn't even Einstein's idea of a fourth dimension. It was because all he was saying is that he, he first said the ether is not necessary, though it was, mm -hmm. um, but he just said it, it, it wasn't necessary and went on from there. And that is, of course, odd given that, you know, he's, I, I got to stay away from basically saying that Einstein didn't understand it, even though I do have proof from some of his, uh, um, from some of his journals that he did not understand Lorenz's work actually mm -hmm. um, and was still using it and then altering it without understanding the basis for it but needless to say there is an alternative interpretation the math does not need to change for there to be uh, a fluid mechanics available so then the question that usually comes up then is what the pe what people kind of say is well, uh, if it's uh, if if they're both the same, then and you've got a theory with the ether and without one, uh, then and then you don't need the ether to should fall to Occam's razor. Okay. However, that's when people do not understand that if you remove the ether, you then have to have a real fourth dimension. Okay, that's a requirement. That's what Minkowski uh actually laid down in mathematical terms and showed that you have to have a fourth dimension. So, so it's not ether or no ether, it's ether or a fourth dimension that is real. Now, like I said, Lorentz was using the fourth dimension as a handy notation tool for false perspectives of time. It was a way to understand how an illusion, that somebody who was under an illusion, and, and, and that illusion is semi-real. In other words, the, the contraction was real, the time dilation was real, but their perspective of time and their perspective of constancy was something that was illusory and I can't 
get too much into that right now. Don't you have videos? On yes, the... I do have videos on that. The... MMX, the Michael Samara experiment, and Lawrence's attempt to, attempt at interpreting it, hence well, change his, factor. Yeah, that's where he he exactly he was describing what was happening, and uh, and I do have some lectures that get into this in more detail, and oh. they're they're available on Steampunk Physics uh, YouTube, YouTube channel, channel, right? So. Um, just put that in your YouTube search bar after you're done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so the point here um, is that it's not the, the whole Occam's razor uh, thing that, that people argue is an absurdity because the fourth dimension is adding infinite possible 3D realities within each single moment. In other What's words, wrong with that? Okay, in other words, it, you there all are there when you add a real fourth dimension, instead of having these other perceptions of time that Lorenz was keeping up with, and that's what and that's what that what the fourth dimension meant in a preferred frame mechanics mm -hmm. of ether. Instead, the Minkowski way of doing it is that there are infinite additional uh and what you might call incongruent, they can possibly be incongruent because of the fourth dimension allows the 3D reality to be different for each single moment of time. So in other words, a lot of times people think of uh, fourth dimension time. Well, they already had that, that classical component. It's like, of course, you, if you want to keep up with a moment-to-moment -moment picture of 3D reality, you have to have this picture of 3D reality, then this, then another, then another, then another. So that would be a fourth dimension if you wanted to hold multiple 3D realities, right? No, because that's a, that is, that you have a unified, that is not a real fourth dimension. You have a unified picture of a 3D reality there, and you're not keeping up, you're not using the fourth dimension as Minkowski, Minkowski allows, and that is that within each single moment, there are infinite possible 3D configurations of reality. That is the difference. So, so the question is, does Occam's razor remove a, uh, a fluid medium that allows waves to propagate, or does it remove infinite additional 3D realities? Because that's the choice. And the truth of the matter is, any rational uh, you know, look at this would say, well, of course, it's adding additional realities all stacked on top of each other that you would remove, not a fluid medium. Because in addition to that, you have to, you don't just remove the medium, you remove any kind of mechanics for wave propagation. Now we're so at the This is the magic that you were talking about. So this is the first point at which magic and irrationality and the, the basically the end of the age of reason the point at which we no longer need a reason for things to occur that was the basis of science is the age of reason you had to have a chain of reasons why things occurred mm -hmm. the reason why waves occur what's occurring in a wave is that there is just like if you were to step into a uh, a stadium packed full of people they would have to kind of adjust mm -hmm. and then that adjustment that they made would propagate because the, this guy would bump into that guy then that guy would bump into that guy and it would, it would propagate and it propagates in a wave and we see waves in cars uh you know in traffic they as they, they propagate along but it is mm -hmm. it is a group action a wave is 
it, like for instance in the air, it is a compression and rarefaction. It is that this back and forth adjusting as they try to create a new equilibrium after a local change in density, pressure, etc. Mm. So there, so saying a wave can exist without a medium waving is like saying a jog can exist without a jogger. It's, an, it's nonsense and it's an absurdity. Mm -hmm. And that is what you do along with having to add additional, uh, infinite additional 3D realities on top of you know every single moment. You also have to completely remove any reason by which waves propagate if you remove the ether. Mm -hmm. so, so now which way does Occam's razor cut? Okay. It's obvious. So once again, uh, this is there is an ether. It's called that's that's why we're talking about the neoclassical interpretation mm -hmm. of physics. The ether is the it is the basis by which all of electromagnetism was developed. It was the behaviors of the ethers. And and in my paper, you'll you'll find that they, they, this goes back to a fellow who's less well known, uh, name of James McCullough, and his description of the ether through something called rotational elasticity because mm -hmm. el elasticity the development of elasticity was a huge issue such that maxwell's equations were were under question right just before the um the michelson morley in 1887 maxwell's equations were beginning to look ad hoc and it was mccullough's work with rotational elasticity that actually saved maxwell's equations from being viewed as something that was um, it, it would have been viewed as ad hoc and therefore Talking about not. the equations that we're basing everything on now? Yes, electromagnetism. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, so this rotational elasticity went through and where you have Lord Kelvin developing, and like I said, I'm going to leave most of this in the paper, but uh, to, to people reading the paper, I mean. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it goes into where Lord Kelvin spent, like uh, him and, and who was the other... I always forget the other guy's name. That's terrible. Once again, um, <laughs> the uh, he, he worked with an, another fellow on uh, on basically developing the everything in fluid mechanics, mm -hmm. and then you know further in this paper I show how fluid mechanics, uh, specific specifically in this in fluid mechanics uh, and, and fluid dynamics, they uh, led to all of the various developments and tools we use in physics mm -hmm. and there's a quote you know like for instance from uh, einstein uh, had a quote on uh, lord kelvin's birthday about how he was the father of topology and how uh he, he he showed these things so so things like topology things like uh not theory um and that's k-n k-n-o-t yes uh and uh not sure what the knots even, are. Even That's the, not sailor knots. It's, it's something like there's something called the theory of spiners by by uh, Cartan that is, uh, you know, very. Uh, all of these things lead to things like a general relativity. These are, there are various tools that lead to general relativity mm -hmm. and to quantum mechanics, and all of those things have uh, crucial touch points at which they were entirely informed by developments in ether theory. Uh, they they came from ether theory Which and they're still compatible with fluid ether theory. mechanics, right? But well, a special type of fluid mechanics that is now superfluid. Mm -hmm. uh, it is it is uh, what used to be called inviscid fluid dynamics or inviscid fluid mechanics uh, is now the the physics of superfluids mm -hmm. uh, because and and at the time of course we didn't we didn't have anything. Um, 
we didn't have superfluids way back in the time in the day so talking about ether was talking about something that had very very strange properties. uh properties that were not um intuitive they were not they were not something we had any example of Experience in real life with. we do now have an example of them in real life and so it's just a lot like how we now understand how chaotic uh determinism works through Couday's experiments and uh, and John Bush at MIT has been doing lots of fantastic work in developing the Couday experiments and the Walker experiments and I really recommend absolutely everyone go to his his website on at, at MIT and it's got just tons of information on how this stuff works and really really great explanations but um, so speaking of uh, a lot of realities all in one moment <laughs> that kind of made me think of the the holonomic theory which is connected to Yes, yes it is. Um, so, point is, papers about how ether theory is is completely compatible with um, today's physics, mm -hmm. and uh, understanding that is a difficulty because most people, if they know relativity theory, then they're going to be like, well, constancy uh, is not compatible with uh, preferred frame uh, physics. And that's true. The illusion of constancy is, however, and the difference between it being an illusion and it being a reality is only testable in a two-way speed of light experiment, which has never successfully mm -hmm. been done. Now, there's some subtleties around that I won't get into, but the uh, part of the reason why it's not done is because of a belief system making it where they will they will automatically interpret it based upon a belief system, even if there are falsifying um, even if there is falsifying data that comes from the experiment, they will then interpret it as part of their belief system. So it's like, like for instance, there's this, I do have to kind of do a digression here about the various levels of truth that you can have. Now that's a, that's a lot of pedantics are going to be like, whoa, that's some, mm -hmm. some bullshit right there. There's let, only one truth. let me describe the levels of truth. Okay. So, and, and, and you'll agree when I'm done. Um, so there is a, a tribe in Papua New Guinea who has a um, uh, they, they go out and they they do the the, the ritual uh, to honor the fishing tree and they go out and they sing and, and beat a root into water and fish rise to the surface and they collect the fish and that is how they prove in a, in a semi-scientific fashion over and over and over that the fish that the spirit of the fishing tree responds to the ritual. Now this really does occur. This is a this is a true story. There are fish that respond. Well, here's the thing. So from a Western mindset, there's no possible way this could work. And right now you're like, well, is, it, is he saying it's a spirit? No, it's a neurotoxin. It's a neurotoxin that, that kills fish and is, it is safe for humans. So here's the thing. They have a way of conducting experiments, replicating the experiments, however, their belief system, the metaphysics, the ideas that they describe what's occurring, that the that the spirit is going and getting the fish for them or whatever. I had an example just like that in my what was supposed to be anthropology class and mm -hmm. most postmodernism. I'm still very upset about that. Mm -hmm. And high five to Prim that had the exact same experience in her college where it was complete bait and switch. But anyway, they were uh, discussing how... Um, 
the tribe of whatever um believe the spirit of boiling spirit of water yeah that it will like pray to by and but here's the thing they say that it's an equivalent truth and it is not an equivalent truth and that's because the and and so therefore you have to there (laughs) are levels of truth in other words there is a hierarchy to things that are in essence true and some things are more true than others so yes, there are what, multiple truths. And what would be the rubric too? To and the way that you what? know that is is by how well uh, your model, your overall model, can predict with precision lots of not just things that you expect, but things that you do not expect. Mm-hmm. So uh, so it is it, it, the way that that model unfolds as a mirror to reality that determines how close to truth it is. So so for instance. We, since we know that it's a neurotoxin, uh, we might then use it as a pain reliever uh, because it's safe in humans or as uh, something for, for nerve pain. And, and you know, th- there's, there's other ways. But here's the thing. Their, their model may be extensible as well. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that insects are vulnerable to, um, to things that are neurotoxins. So if they burned it near the bees, then in a certain way it could be gathering food for them like it did before. It helps them, you know, uh, sedate or anesthetize the bees. And so once again, they, they could even extend their model, which is based on experimental evidence. Mm-hmm. And it, so it has a type but of truth to it. But the, but the, but exactly the the granularity the level of which they understand the the causality is not quite right and there is another understanding the neurotoxin version that is a little better and can narrow your search because now at this point they think that they could go and burn it near some deer and maybe it'll fucking you know help <laughs> them with the deer it's not going to help with the deer uh, so there's there are ways in which our knowledge by being more precise can um of the with the more precise mechanics and more information available can unfold in a way that will allow our search pattern to be more narrow and our understanding of reality will be more precise so if we find another if we find another tree that has the exact same uh you know uh, or another plant that has the exact same chemical structure in uh for a uh, some sort of tannin it produces or something like mm-hmm. that, then it too will almost certainly behave in the same way and we can predict that. Mm-hmm. So so there is a level of prediction. So, so that's why um, you can have a level of prediction, just like with the bees, that, uh, the, that is valuable based on a faulty model that is not entirely incorrect. And so the same thing can be true in hard sciences like physics, which is why we have alternative interpretations. So once again, going back to the, uh, what all of this is about, what we're talking about is that there is an alternative interpretation with more information available uh, that is based on fluid mechanics that we have no uh, experimental reason to prefer one versus the other, one interpretation over the other. In other words, there's never been a two-way speed of light test that has been considered to be... Um, and didn't uh, Dayton Miller's research invalidate a um, Nobel Prize? Yes, yes it did. Yes, uh, there, there's huge numbers of reasons. I, I mean, I can go into the way that the 
Um, there, there was the, the, the round the world Sanyak experiment where that where uh, it shows a bias in one direction versus the other, and so that the, the Sanyak effect shouldn't even happen uh, if special relativity was true when it comes to one-way versus two-way constancy. Uh, and the same thing is true with the uh, the atomic clocks and planes that people try to bring up. Uh, there are there are a variety of these things. It's a subtle. Here's the thing. It's a subtle dividing line, and people can't understand subtlety very well. They're either it's like, oh, it has to be 100% this way and 100% that way. No, it's a hierarchy of truth here, and there is an alternative interpretation available mm -hmm. that conforms and exists. It's the same Explains math, but it's the better. way that you extend the math, the additional extensions and explorations that change. And so currently. That's that's why physics is in a model crisis. It's why we believe that that you know ninety five percent of the universe is made up of pixie dust. Right. It's there. There's reasons why, and all of these things go back to one singular point of failure, and that point of failure is believing constancy is real mm -hmm. versus constancy is an illusion, and it's mm -hmm. the difference between and it's and it's and like I said, there's no experimental reason right there's only the occam's razor excuse there, there's no experimental convention. reason which is convention it's orthodoxy it right. is not based uh -huh. upon experiment so so there the, so the point here was just to point out that there is a fluid dynamical a approach to physics and there are lots of experimenters there are lots of individuals that are as a matter of fact the uh, i think it's neoclassical.info or neoclassical physics something that he he actually used the same uh, wording for it that I did independently, mm -hmm. and his um, his models of physics, which he's very deeply into uh, general relativity. What is his name? Hold on. Uh, physics stuff. Maybe. Let's try that. Oh. Um. David something, Neoclassical Physics. Not David Duchovny. Uh, <laughs> not Mulder? No, no, it's not him. I think this may be it. Neoclassical Physics. Yeah, there he is. Um, David uh, Delphinet. And uh, he actually interpreted, he, is the, he, he interpreted from French to English the most advanced ether theory that actually led to... Um, Cartan's theory of spiners and you know uh, a variety of things that are um, which now by the way okay so the what I'm talking about now is is called um, micropolar elasticity and it's um, I won't get too much into it but the the, the point is it's a it's a part of uh, material science now that it was rediscovered back in the 50s and is a huge uh, advantage in uh, in computer modeling now as well so they're finding all these things where it's a far more accurate way to do things it was based on it it was a uh ether theory period and it was based on this this line of reasoning from kelvin all the way back to um uh the the, the no no the uh elastic rotational elasticity from uh, mccullough so there's this line of reasoning it's all pointed out in that paper where it shows all of these ways in which fluid dynamical versions of physics and that interpretation completely interacts at every point all the way from the deeply into the in the past all the way to the present day and there are there are researchers at major inst institutions like said uh, some of the people i've talked to is uh ross ross anderson and robert brady at cambridge 
who have a, um, a fluid dynamical uh, description of uh, particles that uh, that show all of the same you know spooky actions except they're not spooky anymore they're completely described in deterministic mechanics that work so that's the uh, that's that and yes. uh, of course a question from uh, one of our patrons or other comment that uh, uh, you sound like uh, you had uh, perhaps some difficulty with physicists in the past explaining some of these things in your <laughs> agitated tone. Well, the thing is, when you deal with orthodoxy, uh, um, uh, have it. here's the thing. Very smart people are not aware of the orthodoxies they keep in mind. They, don't, they can't see them. They're, they're like hidden to them. They don't know what it is that they believe. They're not aware of the love. Every rational person has to have faith. If you're a rational person, you still have to rely on faith. And if you believe that you're not relying on faith, you are deluding yourself. We, we, n none of us have completed every experiment ourselves. We believe in these, these structures that are useful and have been valuable in the past, whether it be academia or whatever. We have these things that we did not do every, every single experiment ourselves and could not the do any experiment and about. so you have to rely on faith and so therefore things like orthodoxy can become invisible to you because the, the, it's just so many layers removed and being able to see how these tiny little screw-ups way 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 back in the chain of knowledge that you are using every day could cause some some sort of problem today is a very very difficult thing to communicate to people uh, because it's a it's a subtlety and there's just this weight of I do this every day. It this this thing works in these specific ways, and now it's just down to the details that these the reason these things are mismatching. I just got to fix it right here, and it's kind of like anybody who's who's put together a, a very large object that has lots of moving parts that are not perfectly solid but are somewhat flexible a little bit, but it's a kind of stiff. You can just every tiny little you know. Thing that you're off they you, you, it becomes a cumulative error and uh, and you can think that you can fix it you know at the end where you're finally dealing with it no longer working but the truth of the matter is sometimes you have to disassemble the whole damn thing and put it back together again and that's that happens all the time uh it happens in biology for fuck's sake but i, I won't get into that the, the the point is that there's there is these things way way back that are just tiny tiny little things being off that cause this cumulative error. And it's just very difficult to get people to see that they can't fix it right here. You can't fix it by another another version of, of dark matter and energy. You can't fix it, you know, with the, with all of these absurdities. The latest I saw, they were gonna tweak the math until it's just right. Yeah, that's what they're gonna do. It's a, it's like, we're not in model crisis with every single thing that comes out everywhere showing us the, a thousand different ways our model is breaking. No, that's not model crisis. We just gotta, all I gotta do is just, just push it really hard at this one point. And they don't wanna reassemble everything from the beginning, of course, who wants to? You spend your entire life in a subfield and that's what, and anybody who's a programmer understands this, I mean, you you know, you don't. Even, you may not even have the ability to rebuild the whole thing. I know. I personally was programming. You know, in C I was using Microsoft Foundation classes. I don't. I, you know. Imagine being told that. Well, you can no longer. You've got this project that you need to do, and uh, it's not going to work with your skill set at all. And you're going to have to learn absolutely everything about all, all the way down to the hardware. 
that's that's an impossibility and I, and I know being told that I'm going to have to learn how to completely redesign the way that freaking computers work you know yeah okay maybe it's possible but it's going to I can't I sure as fuck can't do it alone uh you know there's there are these types of things that are so daunting that you can't even you can't even grasp them you can't even touch them because there's and, that, and that's part of what I'm trying to point out here is there is a path that is that is an alternative path that is that is showing a tremendous amount of pro, uh, you know uh, promise mm -hmm. and there are people who at reputable you know establishments who are showing that this is the way to go but nobody wants to go that way yeah. and it's also it's kind of like redesigning Windows uh, you know the Windows operating system it's practically it's going to take huge numbers of people. Uh, working together on something to be able to, you know, go back to the beginning and redo all of it. Um, and it's not, it wouldn't have to be completely redone. There's all of this information that we have. It's just, it's, there are these analogies between things. And now speaking of analogies, let's go back to quantum physics for a moment. In quantum physics, there's something called phonons. Okay, it's not, it's actually not in quantum physics, it's in material science. And it's a, uh, it is whenever we are looking at, uh, it's, well, I think one of the first uses for it is with laser technology. So whenever you're using lasers, you might be dealing with phonons because it is a unit of energy. It is a discrete unit of energy uh, in a crystalline lattice. So like uh, some of the first lasers were done with rubies. and uh, <clears throat> But the important thing to understand here is... Are you saying crystals are magical? <laughs> saying crystals are, are a basis for technology. Uh, anyway, the... Um, um, the, the thing with phonons is that they are a quantum mechanical treatment of mechanical waves. So phonons are particles, like, a lot like photons, that are, that, but they have no actual real physical existence, period. The mechanical waves that are propagating in a crystalline media, like, well, just basically like in Ruby or whatever, um, there are transition energies in other words the amount of energy required for this you know um the amount of the, the distance between various particles can determine the frequency of the wave and then the the frequency of the wave when it's in you know partial amounts is going to have different effects like the way it's going to bounce off certain places versus tra tra travel through certain areas that's going to be dependent upon frequency so there's all these different things that have to do with transition and uh, and so these transitions are uh they're they're very precise in a certain way so phonons though we we can think of them as particles they don't exist but they are a representation of something now this is something you can look up yourself uh there's nothing controversial about this at all i'm simply describing something that we know and something we do which is a quantum mechanical treatment of mechanical waves and so that is that there is a substrate that we believe that these things are happening then we're calling them particles as if they have their own discrete existence apart from the material but they do not it is the way that we are mathematically treating them just like there are not really actually gallons in a pool when we're talking about water the gallons aren't there they're a way of dividing it but in this case it's not such an arbitrary way of dividing it. It's a way of dividing it that takes into account properties of the medium. That's why it's so, um, they, they seem so much more like particles and it's so much more useful to treat them as these individual particles. But the particles do not exist 
at all. They're just a way of dividing waves, mechanical waves, compressions and rarefactions in the crystalline media. And so that is one of the ways in which you can see this, uh, this analogy where, there, where we're using analogies and we don't necessarily, we, sometimes you can become so many layers abstracted through your analogies that the math no longer has much meaning to you. You can continue to use it as a tool, but you don't understand it. Once again, that goes back to the programming thing. There are some times in which you just use a function and you got no freaking clue what that function really, really does. You know what it does, but you don't really know what it's doing. Uh, and that's the truth of the matter. And that's where you have to have this layer of abstraction. You use the tools and you can advance forward. You can make lots of programs with, without having the faintest clue how to address the hardware. So the same thing is true in physics. They have these these ways of applying things that are analogies. They are not, there's no physical existence to phonons. So understanding that is one of those crucial things that I have to get across to people that, so that they understand what we're talking about here is that there are different ways to look at the current physics that we have, all mm -hmm. of those discoveries, all of those, uh, uh, those all of that all experimental data. data can mean something else but you just have to map your idea of what's going on slightly differently. Right. Same math is occurring, and you, but you can also use different math. And so back in, I think it was, uh, oh shoot, as early as the 1930s or 40s, that where, where they, they showed how uh, quantum mechanics can be recast in hydrodynamic form. So it's not like this is something new. I'm not talking about something new. I'm not even talking about something that is particularly um, uh, controversial in specifics mm -hmm. the overarching thing that i'm telling you about the possibility of there being an ether is something that is extremely controversial because people do not understand that division between lorenz's interpretation lorenz poincare interpretation poincare i'm never going to properly pronounce french names um and uh einstein minkowski's interpretation that there's a wide difference between the two that we don't have experimental reason to to uh, to um prefer Einstein Minkowski over Lorentz Poincaré and and that one upon re-examination we have significant reason to do it the other way and and that extends not just from from relativity but all the way into quantum mechanics so now we've talked about all of all of this to, to lay the groundwork so uh, I, I'm sorry we had to do all that we talked about we were gonna <laughs> say we're gonna talk about consciousness how the hell well I, I'll tell you how the hell so so now what I'm talking about is how do we describe consciousness, which is which can be a very fuzzy subject because we don't understand a whole lot about it um, in some ways, and yet we do understand it very intimately in others. Um, how do we describe consciousness in a way that doesn't rely on any appeal to magic, any appeal to concepts such as random, which I believe random does not exist, uh, there, there's there, how do we do it without any of those those appeals? Which I'm saying so. I'm, so basically, what I'm doing is I'm calling mainstream physics too wooish and magical, mm -hmm. and uh, which is what people have a hard time kind of grasping. That I'm I'm literally saying my, mainstream physics is you know what people and I mean, mainstream physics isn't. <laughs> there's two different things we need to separate. Mainstream interpretations. And then mainstream mathematics and experiments. 
And those things have a huge separation between them. Our narrative, our story, our idea of what's happening. Just like the, 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 there's something happening when that guy beats the root into the water and he knows he can do it over and over and he can then in the future apply it to the bees or, you know, that those things are a kind of truth, but what's <laughs> happening on the surface, he can measure the number of fish and he can measure the, how much honey he gets and all of it can become down to numbers and it's going to be the same, but his story about it can be radically different from a story about the real evidence that will work better. And that's what we're talking about. So now the uh, let me let me let, let's let's go ahead and take a uh, take a, a trip off to uh, to somewhat wooish land uh, for a moment and uh, and talk about uh, you know where consciousness you know has been kind of uh, <coughs> dealt with and talked about and and uh, you know and, and what various viewpoints on it are. So here's the thing: there are people who will immediately anytime you try to talk about consciousness. Uh, in any way other than with uh, just where you're so far abstracted from it, you're just, you're not talking about anything. You have the illusion of knowledge. And those people try to say that, you know, neural networks, we already got all the information we need. We don't need quantum mechanics to be involved in it at all. That's, that is an ignorant perspective. They'll act like they're knowledgeable, but they're ignorant as shit. And they're, they're way oversimplifying what is necessary to produce the Sorry. level of computation that is occurring in a human brain. Um, and then, so then there's this level of complexity, and we've been grasping at it with tools that have magic built into them inherently. Uh, right down to waves not having a medium and, you know, spooky action at a distance that, that Einstein argued against. Which, by the way, that's one of the things I did want to point out is that Einstein himself... Uh, argued against the idea of constancy and uh, and was talking about preferred frame physics and an ether in 1920. Okay, 1920. It's been, you know, nearly 100 years ago, Einstein was telling people that, you know, we do need some sort of idea of preferred frame physics. So there's a lot of things that are, that are, that come to us through the telephone game and, and things that become orthodoxy can overwrite even, you know, where the originator himself had to say about what it is that our orthodoxy says about it. What were you going to say? I was going to suggest if, or ask rather, if there is any difference, if at all, between determinism as per, that's, you know, that's why you would need essentially either not just to have things that are waves, such as, you know, it's called a light wave, Therefore, something needs to be waving. Um, therefore, you need a medium such as ether. But at the same time, is there a difference between state and determinism? Or is that one of the same? Or how do we... Um, okay, well, the idea of fate and determinism, um, that's kind of a, a, a subject that's a little difficult to get into because our understanding of chaotic determinism is something that is fairly new. Uh -huh. um, it's in the... Whenever we think about fate, usually we put it in very simplistic terms. Like our minds can only grasp it in very oversimplified terms. It's just kind of a, kind of a. Uh, whenever you're you're talking about subjects like this, there are literally limitations to how well our minds work with lots of information simultaneously. Uh, we can we can if we divide it up a lot, we can kind of deal with it to a certain extent. But there are things like. Uh, one of the best examples is whenever you think about what came first, the chicken or the egg, 
there um, there is this idea where we'll, where we're trying to make two things that are that are literally just one thing. Um, you know, we're we're arbitrarily dividing it, and it's kind of hard to think of the way that those things are depend. They're in a mutual dependency in a cycle that uh, evolves over time. Right, and we're opposing a harsh borderline and citing border conditions, citing which side we stand on. Like, right, arbitrarily. And so, <laughs> and so there's basically this. You're this goes back that. to something. Uh, uh, the best book to read on this would be uh, Girdle, Escher, and Bach by. Um, Douglas Hofstetter. And the idea is that there is kind of this, this vulnerability in mathematics uh, where basically you can make mathematics turn in on itself or any kind of logical, rational progression kind of break through something that is um, an infinite loop. Basically, it's the same way the computers tend to break. Uh, and you can do that through things like this sentence is false, um, which basically causes infinite regression. So there, this goes all the way back to, I think it was, was it Plato or Socrates? I don't know who there's the, the problem of infinite regress. And that is anytime we try to think about the cause of something, it not only continues going backwards infinitely, it also starts branching immediately, extremely, and it, it becomes an exponential branching as well. So right off the bat, as soon as you try to start thinking, well, this was caused because of this, because of this, because of this, you start automatically because you can't think a lot about it. Like, I don't know if anybody's watched that, uh, that how things were made or, there, you know, these, these connections. I think it's called Connections was the name of the show. There was, a, there was a show where they said, this happened and then this happened and then this happened and that's how we ended up in space. And that's cute because the fact is what they did is accidentally prune all the branching of all the billions of other events that had to also happen to cause that linear chain that they can identify. So we can easily identify that Talk linear chain. Talk about the chain. show that we've been watching? Or some it's, there's a really old one. I oh, think okay. there's a newer version of it um, where basically you say this happened because this happened because this happens and you call, and you talk about this linear chain. But it's but the thing is, and that seems really appealing to us, oh, but it's but it's not representative of reality in, you know, in, in any way. Uh, it's, it is a simplification that is simply one of billions of branches that are all converging on a single point that you identify mm -hmm. and you just simply follow one of the branches back because our brains aren't really made to follow all of those simultaneous interconnections of all the billions of branches that come together. But the point is we have ways of abstracting away from those, like the things that I'm talking about, Ralph, even though I can't hold in my head all of the billions of branches of, of causality that, you know, I can create these kinds of shortcuts in my head and everybody can do that. But it's, uh, so we have these cognitive limitations that we can kind of conceive of the limitation itself without necessarily kind of overcoming it. So, uh, how did this come up? Uh, fate versus determinism. Okay. Fate versus determinism. So, so the same thing is true of the future. So if we think about all these instantaneously, there's tons of branching uh, that has to happen anytime we think about a given event when we're going into the past. Well, the, the number of things that a single event also um, uh, influences 
instantly begins branching like crazy as well. And so whenever we try to think of linear progressions into the future, we're not thinking of all the branches and, and, and the branches of branches of branches. <laughs> and so uh, and so there's the, the, the point here to talk about fate. There's whenever we the, in Godel Escher and Bach, uh, Girdle, God damn it. <laughs> I'm going to continually mispronounce his name also. Um, Girdle Escher and Bach uh, by Hofstetter, he talks about um, uh, that there are these types of algorithms that are non-determining, uh, non-terminating. In other words, they'll just keep going. And the only way you can't take shortcuts to kind of uh, guess what they'll be because uh, it, it has to be fully executed all the way to the end to determine what it will be. It so requires... Kind of like the answer 32? You have yeah. to build a computer that takes... But the thing is, is it's it, it requires all of the things that are occurring to even determine. It. So there's just there's just no shortcutting it, um, and so there's there, there there seems to kind of be a disconnect between our ideas of fate and actual determinism, and that's something that I uh, that I can't really comment further on because I feel like it is something that nobody really has a good uh, grasp of. I think that we are all working with limited tools and that there may be a, a fairly significant difference between determinism and fate uh, because i think fate is a is an oversimplification because we are watching an uh, anime right now that's focused fate yeah yeah it is talking about um, well there there is a, a a crucial concept to understanding all of this that that uh something that happens is dependent upon its situation uh an event is dependent upon okay well i've just talked about these linear these ideas that we have are these linear chains of cause and effect however you know at any given moment we can look at all of the billions of other things that have to be the in the right effect. place <laughs> they have to be in the right place that you know for you to be okay so with the butterfly effect you know, you talk about that that one right. li linear chain of the butterfly leading to, uh, you know, dust. But why did and that, that work? Leading to a storm and that leading to you having a car accident because of hydroplaning on water. And, you know, and you're the, you know, man plans to go to work, if it were, like, for instance, if you're, uh, and God laughs. In other words, right. just, the, the, just that butterfly flapping its wing, uh, you know, ends up. But whenever we think of that one linear chain, there's all the things that have to do with you being in the car, you being right. on that road, you being all of those things have billions of other things contributing right. to that. And yeah, so why there did is that a, happen? It was so many different confluences. So there is a there is sort of a we think of uh, causality in a very linear chain sort of fashion, and we don't think of instantaneous the role that all of those instantaneous alignments play in causality. In other words, causal effects cannot be simply looked at from the past uh you know what happened beforehand that's a linear way of looking at it you also have to look at causality from instantaneous configuration of reality uh at that moment and so there's that's kind of a a lateral component of causality and so that is that's kind of an important concept you say that's here. the fourth dimension uh, uh i don't like know like time because you know uh, well, yeah, I suppose um, they have to all sort of come together. But the point here is that there is that, that there is a um, 
there's a dependency upon everything and that is there there is a a lot of times it's very difficult for human minds we just we, we think of things in linear terms right. and we don't think of things in that way where there's just not we kind of know it automatically everybody kind of knows that automatically but you don't think about it enough to really put it in terms that are a little more focused upon the that fact it's mm -hmm. something we kind of graze over and don't pay much attention to in any kind of you know conversations about it etc but it is very important to understanding holography yep so we're going to talk about holography and how uh holography is not the it's not the image not that princess is produced leia. it's not princess leia no uh it's not the image produced it is a method of storing and combining information that allows it to overlap and then also be uh, the individual components that are overlapping still be extracted. And it's done in a way that is very counterintuitive and most people don't really understand. And it is a principle that is very core to the way that consciousness works and to the way that, um, and, and part of what's actually occurring in um back propagating you know neural networks uh -huh. etc there is something there are there some there is them earlier, yes. right there is a uh there is a component to holography that is um part of neural networks that people don't really necessarily associate they don't associate neural networks with holography but there is a um a way that they work that is very um the 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 the, the way the two things are similar is very important to understand. Now, is that also similar or different from Elon Musk and the other types uh, talking about a theory that will live in a hologram? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, a lot the uh, the holographic universe theory is right. different uh, in some ways and similar in others. Okay. So the idea of uh, the holographic universe is that that we may be in the inside a black hole and all of reality is is basically two dimensional, and that we get that we only see uh, a third dimension because it is a projected hologram from this this surface on the inside of the black hole or something oh, to that what? effect. It, it's just. <laughs> Um, Never mind. <laughs> it's a bit, yeah. It's uh, there's there's a lot to it, and I may I may be slightly misrepresenting it as well right. because I, I'm not all that interested in it. Sure. Um, so based on some similar precepts, but it's um, I, I don't I don't find it to be exactly the same. Uh, it, it I think it's um, well, it's definitely not exactly the same as what I'm talking about. Um, there is so so going back to the holography thing. There is something called the uh, Bohm and Pribram uh, holonomic mind theory. So this is a, a theory of the way that the human brain stores and processes information right. and, and it tends to account for various things like why it is that you can take out a bunch of neurons and still not lose the individual memory. How, you know, how does that work? Why is it that one memory and one neuron is there's not one bit to right. one piece. There's not this one-to-one -one relationship and it's because of Holography. Now, when I say Bohm and Pribram, I mean the same David Bohm of the Bohmian mechanics that are part of the interpretation of um, uh, quantum mechanics that I prefer and that I've been trying to tell 
everyone about and, and that, then that's what we're talking about here is there is a there is a there's a there's a chain of things that are all connected here that I'm trying to to point out and that is the fluid dynamics that leads to a reason why Bohmian mechanics are proving to be better and that's why this is and, and how does this relate to consciousness okay so now, as I said, we're going to we're going to take a, a little trip into a little bit of the La La Land because I just ran into it just the other day. I find it highly entertaining because it turns out that this declassified document from the CIA, um, it was when was it declassified? Uh, two thousand and three. Two thousand and three. It's from nineteen eighty three. Some of you may have heard about it before, uh, and it is an attempt to using um, all of the uh, physics and, uh, and neuroscience that was known at the time, and this was in 1983, to as a basis for explaining uh, remote viewing. Mm. So this was, this is the, I think this may be the primary, you know, remote viewing uh, document. And remote viewing, of course, being the, the process of a psychic type of person who, uh, as an asset to the CIA, will, you know, sit in a room or what have you and uh, psychically connect to another mind or another, have well, you. another place. Another Basically place. get information about another place. Right, and see what's going on over there. So, so this was... So here's the thing, you know, you got to ask how how is it that a rational like group CIA. of army men and see <laughs> well no the CIA is who, who manages the, it's uh um, We talking about the uh, the report was written by some general Yeah, army the person. Department of the Army, US right. Ar Army Operational Group, Army Intelligence and Security Command, uh, Fort George Meade, Maryland. So the uh, this is something I just ran into the other uh, the other day uh, even though I already you know, strongly um, was interested in the Bowman Pribra model and part of the consciousness group that I uh, interact with regularly. They, uh, the basically the um, the the Pribram was a neuroscientist who then had kind of a protege named um, Oh crap! I forgot his name. Uh, yeah, that's terrible. Uh, anyway, I, I'm really bad with names. Sorry about that. But uh, but he he was in this uh, consciousness group, um, you know, until he died just just fairly recently, I guess a year or two ago. And um, so so uh, you know, I've been I've been interested in the Bowman Pribram model uh, because it's the only one that makes any sense. And um, for a long time and then this was just a week or two ago that i ran into this this document about remote viewing uh, released by the cia so what they're trying to do in this document is uh come up with a rational set of reasoning for what it what seems to be um you know psychic phenomena or whatever so mm -hmm. so i found it very interesting and you and what was neat is that because they also were referring to what was the, one of the best models at the time uh, for, uh, and it still is, for, for how the brain produces consciousness and stores and processes information would be the bowman pribram model. They mentioned the bowman pribram model and, uh, and then also give one of the most, um, the, one of the clearest descriptions of what holography actually is um that i've ever run into and it's clear concise and uh and i find that even professionals in uh in a variety of fields don't 
understand holography well enough to, to explain it in a way that is concise. And, and so running into it in this paper was very interesting. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I want to find the point at which he is describing a holography and, uh, and we're going to read that to you. And actually you're going to read it to give my voice a, uh, a little bit of a break here. Sure. So they're going on about all of these different processes. Uh, let's see. Frequency following response. Now is remote viewing and clairvoyance same or different? Um, I think it would be fairly similar. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. There might be some, who knows, some subtle difference. Uh, here we go. Holograms. All right. Now, so the context of this is uh, there's a lot of other stuff that, you know, of course, We'll leave a uh, a link to the the um, a link to the CIA so they can know that you're looking at this document too. Exactly. I'll leave we'll leave a link to the the uh, the declassified thing so you can read through it if you like. But uh, here, yeah, go and ahead and this read is, this. I believe on page seven of this document, perhaps. It's called the Gateway Process, is what the uh, what this was about. So. Mm -hmm. And the um, yeah, it's on no, it's on page nine of the the PDF here, and it's uh, point number twelve. Holograms. Energy creates, stores, and retrieves meaning in the universe by projecting or expanding at certain frequencies in a three-dimensional mode that creates a living pattern called a hologram. The concept of the hologram can be most easily understood by using an example cited by Bentov, in which he asks the reader to visualize a bowl of fruit of a bowl full of water, into which three pebbles are dropped. As the ripple created by the simultaneous entry of the three pebbles radiates outward towards the rim of the bowl, Bentov further asks the reader to visualize that the surface of the water is suddenly flash-frozen, so that the ripple pattern is preserved instantly. The ice is removed, leaving the three pebbles still laying at the bottom of the bowl. Then the ice is exposed to a powerful, coherent source of light, such as a laser. The result will be a three-dimensional model or representation of the position of the three pebbles suspended in midair. Holograms are capable of encoding so much detail that, for example, it is possible to take a holographic projection of a glass of swamp water and view it under magnification to see small organisms not visible to the naked eye when the glass of water itself is examined. The whole concept of the holography, despite its, despite its scientific implications, has only been known to the physicists since the underlying mathematical principles were worked out by Dennis Gabor in 1947. He later won a Nobel Prize for his work. Laboratory demonstration of Gabor's work only occurred years later following invention of the laser. As biologist Leon Watson explains, quote, the purest kind of light available to us that produced by a laser is that produced by a laser which sends out a beam in which all the waves are of one frequency, like those made by an ideal pebble in a perfect pond. When two laser beams touch, they produce an interference pattern of light and dark ripples that can be recorded on a photographic plate. And if one of the beams, instead of coming directly from the laser, is reflected first off an object such as a human face, the resulting pattern will be very complex indeed, but it can still be recorded. The record will be a hologram of the face. 13. Uh, the part encodes the whole. Of further importance, 
is the fact that even if we dropped our frozen hologram of the ripple pattern on the floor and broke it into a number of pieces, each individual piece would recreate the entire holographic image all by itself. The smaller the piece, the fuzzier and more distorted would be the resulting holographic projection, but the fact remains that a whole projection would nonetheless be made. The key to creating any hologram is that energy in motion must interact with energy in a state of rest, not motion. In the foregoing example, the pebble represents energy in motion, while the water, before its agitation by the pebble, represents energy at a state of rest. To activate or in effect to perceive the meaning of a holograph, energy, in this case a coherent light source, interaction between the moving energy, oh wait, uh, hold. in this case a coherent light source such as a laser beam, must be passed through the interference pattern generated by the interaction between the moving energy and their energy at rest. And the simple interaction between the moving energy and the energy... Uh, oh my god, I can't do this. <laughs> Jesus. Would you like for me to take over? <laughs> no, it's, it's all starting to, to blur together because it's like this old-fashioned um, typewriter font on white paper. And okay, so let's get a, re, re, uh, a running... Sorry. To activate, or in effect to perceive, in quotes, the meaning of a holograph, Energy, in this case a coherent light source such as a laser beam, must be passed through the interference pattern generated by the interaction between the moving energy and the energy at rest. In the simple example given by Bentov, this requirement was fulfilled by holding the frozen interference pattern in front of the coherent light to project a three-dimensional holographic image, its quote, meaning, into space. As Marilyn Ferguson, editor of the Brain Mind Bulletin, tells us, Quote, another feature of a hologram is its efficiency. Billions of bits of information can be stored in a tiny space. The pattern of the holographic photograph is stored everywhere on the plate. Okay, that's it. That's so a what good is ending it? point. So what does that all mean? <laughs> what does that all mean? So that's a description of how holograms work. Now, actually, there's uh, there is a there's an article on how stuff works. I think is that where it is? How stuff works. Holograms. I think uh, this, if this is what I'm thinking, it is also a very good description with, yes, how holograms work on how stuff works. Uh, the, the, uh, that website is a, it shows a, a picture of a hologram being split, in, a hologram of a star being split in two and showing two holograms of stars and those being pieces and then you see more holograms of stars so that that's the article and that will be a uh, that's also a very good guide to understanding how holograms work and that is it's a very important concept to understand anything that i'm trying to try to tell you about consciousness but so i'm going to try to go on about it a little bit more and that's just another resource for explaining it in mm -hmm. other terms that might be useful to you but the important part to understand here is that the whole the image is in uh, the whole image is encoded on every part of it so so you say you got a piece of paper you know and the only thing that you're seeing is a three-dimensional star you know on that piece of paper when you cut that piece of paper in half there is still even though you went right down the middle of the star uh if you look at it at the right angle those two halves will each have a star on them whole star not the half a star that's hard, that's difficult to, uh, to understand how that could even work right and it's because of the way that information is encoded everywhere it's combined it's on it's uh it's information on top of other information all compressed together what did lasers have to do with it 
uh, has to do with making something that's very, very uh, precise and not because any any light that you look at normally is made up of multiple frequencies and uh, and of course it's unless it's a the purest tone even even if it's uh made up of it may it's made up of white light you're still going to have uh lots of different phases uh that are varying etc so there's there's just it's it's a hyper simplification of it that allows okay um you to basically pick out one set of information from all of the information uh that combined with the angle of incident so okay i was explaining that to her but let me back up in just a moment so it's important to understand that what we're talking about is that information for a single thing a single image the whole thing is at every given point on the yeah, holographic plate or surface the the whole all the information for the star so how on earth could all of the information for the star be in, in, in every single place? Right. Uh, and the way that works is going to be difficult to, uh, to describe, but I, do, I, I really got to hammer this home that it's not like the pixels that you see on a typical image, where in one, at one point you see a pixel. And so I'm, I'm going to use one, one of the holograms that a lot of people are probably familiar with, and that is the Visa hologram. There used to be a dove on it. And, and if we think of that dove as a typical image on a piece of paper uh, and not a hologram, then there is a point at which the tip of its beak is made up of like, you know, let's say it's like three pixels, but let's just pick one particular pixel at the very tip tip of the beak. And it's just one pixel. The only information there is the color of whatever we want it to be right there, right? That's, that's, that's all that is there. Just a given color mm -hmm. um that is not true of a hologram and uh not only is the the beak um <laughs> not the the tip of the beak not at that one location it's in a variety of locations well, what does that mean it, it's spread out across the hologram oh. and how it the, the how it does that is because what you are you are not viewing um when you zoom in on it what what is there light coming from all of the different places on the uh the the holographic i'm gonna, I'm gonna keep calling it a plate because that was some of the early holograms were done on plates uh all of the light reflecting off of that plate from every different angle on that plate is all coming to a single point on your eye and it has the ability to interfere so the information from one point and another is actually pairing off and removing information coming from other points. There, there's interactions and amplifying information coming from others. So you have to understand the principle uh, of interference, how interference works. Now, not just the word interference like, like you typically hear, but specifically waves interacting. When waves interact, the... Waves the, of light in this case. Yeah, waves of light in this case. When a peak interacts with another peak or a trough interacts with another trough, they are amplified. So basically, if we think of this in terms of like sound, the, you know, the more compressed or rarefied an area is, if you have a compression added to a compression, it's double the compression. If there's a rare, rarefaction added to another rarefaction, it's double the rarefaction. So it completely makes sense in a mechanical sort of, sort of way, but there are more complex uh, ways that... Uh, 
waves travel than than that kind of the way that we think of sound there's more complex ways that it travels through uh through solids and through the ether um but needless to say the interactions that occur can add or subtract and so what's happening is when you get an image when you're looking at a hologram mm -hmm. what you are seeing is the combination of not just the light that you're you know like you would say you're looking at the tip of the beak well, the light coming from a place just to the right, to the top, to the left, all of those things are adding some information to the thing coming from that uh, from the, that place that you think of as the tip of the beak and subtracting other information. So it's these additions and subtractions of the information coming from the areas around it. And in fact, the light coming from the corner of the page way the hell away from that tip of the beak that you're staring at is also adding and subtracting information from the the light that is coming from the point that you think of as the tip of the beak it seems so complex how is that made to 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 interfere with each other like because that? we do it by using light we allow light to do it it's just like the way the michelson morley experiment happened the way the michelson morley the michelson morley experiment was something that you you would once you started to just barely begin to understand it you would think it would be impossible with the technology of the day but it wasn't because what we were doing was using light on itself right. and so light has the ability to do these things well sound has the ability to do it as well and i actually plan on, on doing stuff with sound holograms but that's for another that's a, that's another discussion uh anyway the um the point is that the information coming from all of those points uh is coming to to a to a point at the eye so so one of the things to think about is that we we um we experience something sort of like this in our everyday lives and that is when you're in the center of a room let's think of freezing the light and you know, when you're like in the center of the room and now think about this for a moment since you can view the whole room from any given point in the room then that means now that i've frozen the light in the room the whole image of the room is existing at every point in the room that's true okay so so you can so say you're standing in the center of the room and you move to the upper left of the room you still see the whole room and uh, the you move to the lower right you still see the whole room that's because light is bouncing off of every surface and going in every direction and reaching every point so every object that you could possibly see is shining light in that direction right and so you you have this combination of all the information so so let's say if you were to trace every single so like you have frozen your room right around you right so let's let's think of the corner of the of the door mm -hmm. and trace the a laser beam from mm -hmm. your eyeball to that corner while you're standing in the center. Now let's have you move wherever and then still see the corner and trace a laser there and you can move around and in that sense that corner of the room is shining little, little lasers in every single to every single point in the room. Okay. That corner of the room so is if shining. You were to, if you were to interpose uh, or overlay a mesh of lasers from, like, from that by, point, by using, anything that you see, yeah. it's gonna, it's gonna, that laser is going okay. to point to every single po other point in the room. 
And it's going to... And then you then pick another point, and it does the same thing. And so this, Therefore, there's, it exists in every Right, point. so that's okay. why the whole image of the room ex exists at in every, every point, point in the room, okay. in the room even once sense. you've frozen all the light. So... So understanding that there is, that, that our eyes have to, that's why we have to focus. That's why your eyes have to do the focus thing is because when an image is not in focus, you're getting information from other areas. You haven't pruned off the information that is duplicated. There's lots of duplicated information. And so this, there's this addition and subtraction of information that's kind of happening there. And that's why our eyes have to focus mm -hmm. is because of all those various angles at which light can be entering the eye. Are they Merkles? Merkles? Right. I said angles. Angles. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that is kind of, it's, it's, it's not exactly holography. But it is similar in principle of understanding these, that there are large sets of information because the same sort of thing happens with a hologram that the, that if, if we keep reducing, like say for instance, you, uh, you capture an image of a, of a star, you know, on uh, one single holographic plate, then, um, and you, then you chip off a little tiny piece, the, like say the piece is the, the, the original plate is the size of a, you know, typical like eight by 10 or eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And then you take off a little piece that's the size of a dime. There's still gonna be the image of the star, even though it was a huge star on that plate initially, then you rip off your little dime sized piece and there's a tiny star there. That tiny star doesn't have as much, um, what's it called, refining information. It doesn't have the information that will properly refine it, so it may be extremely blurry. Uh, and yeah, that's hard to understand why. Because because there's more there's more resolution available. There's more points of tiny cross like it, like exactly all the cross references coming from all over that huge sheet. Each one of them adds up to another subtle little fucking you know tiny alteration to the image mm -hmm. that that refines it more and more and more so basically as you reduce the all the various angles and all the different all the information that's that's on that sheet down to make your little dime sized piece mm -hmm. there's no longer as much information available to refine the image that you're looking at so even though the image is still there it's not as well defined. And so this should sound similar mm -hmm. to how memories can sometimes be fuzzier. Right. Uh, and, and so there is that, now you should be able to see how this also relates to the idea of, of you know, individual neurons not relating one-to-one -one with memories, but instead being able to encode information that when it is all together as a whole, and so this is called a holistic approach, which is why it's called a hologram. It's the whole thing hmm. adding together creates the individual event. And so the, the individual thing would be, you know, any given memory mm -hmm. is, is, is created through uh, the interaction of the whole brain. In other words, and, and so this... It's not spelled W-H. No, it's not spelled W-H, but that is actually where it comes from. The idea of a hologram is because of it being a whole. And so they could just, it, the spelling is just different. Um, well, any kind of, whenever they're talking about holistic approaches, it's because mm. they, they spell it with it, just oh, an H, but it's so, supposed to be the whole thing. So it's the, when you say holonomic brain theory, that has undo with holograms. 
like the little layers, but it has everything to do with hope. <laughs> yes, exactly. So power crystals, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, you know what's funny is the uh, the um, th that CIA paper. It's actually part of a group of papers released that are called the Stargate uh, group of. Um, cute. Yes, it is cute. Um, but anyway, and why that matters is because in Stargate they have the crystals as part of their technology. That's yeah, right. Home right. Devices. Funny. Uh, well, the I think it was the the Gwaluld had their like their 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 shit was powered by. Crystals somehow. Anyway. Um, okay. So now we've talked about holograms. We've talked about... Uh, Where's the touch unconscious? How that is... Because, I mean, it is connected physics through bro, uh, bone, like... Yes. Directly. In physics, yeah. Bone has the... You have the De Broglie-Bohm uh, pilot wave interpretation of quantum mechanics. And then you have the uh, bohm pribram uh, holonomic brain theory, and the reason is because uh, obviously Bohm was a badass, and he understood both of these things. So, um, did we want to talk about holonomic brain theory as it relates to holography? Well, I kind of did touch on mm -hmm. it just a little bit there because what we're uh, and that's what I was going to continue forward. Right. So, so when we talk about uh, some of the things that have to do with consciousness that um, that have been proven time and time again to be related to states of consciousness is the various um, waveforms that are occurring in the brain. Now, I mean, there are um, uh, systems that can use the uh, the various sets of waves that, that whether it's alpha, beta, uh, gamma, theta uh, waves, and so that's the frequency of the waves that are occurring in the brain, and they use those in a kind of a general way to. Uh, uh, find out things like certain states of mind, and uh, and so these are these are well known things that the brain tends to synchronize large scale um, waves of action occurring. So you should be able to understand that what I'm saying here is that these large scale synchronizations of the firings of neurons are part of the lateral causation. Remember, I was talking about how all the things that are happening beside something that create a situation are uh, are part of it that we have to think about in causality. It, well, the same thing would be true here in the holonomic brain theory. The firing of a given neuron that's called an action potential is altered by the firing of uh, neurons that are sort of beside it, we'll say, if we think of it as like a single slice through the brain. All those ones that are giving off electromagnetic information, because whenever you are electromagnetic waves, whenever a um, electricity travels through a wire, there is a, a wave of a that is so you have electric electricity going one way, and you have a you have a magnetism in the other direction, and so th this is kind of the principle you know, the basic principles of electromagnetism that you, whenever, so whenever a neuron has electricity firing through it, there is a, um, uh, there's magnetic, uh, I, I, I would assume to call them waves, but uh, it's kind of confusing, but the, but there are these patterns of waves that are occurring in the brain that are synchronizations that are the, the, that create patterns that are like the three stones being dropped in the bowl of water that he was describing when he was describing holograms. It is information that is coming together 
it's electromagnetic information and there are peaks and troughs that kind of impinge on the sides or coming in from the sides that they gather together to uh, into points that change the likelihood that a given neuron will fire so there is so action potential can actually be changed by the way that all of the neurons in the brain are firing and well, furthermore we're talking about waves yes and we're talking about waves still so and furthermore not only that there is a mechanism by which the those waves are um recorded in a short-term uh, way in the um astroglia so the astroglia are the uh are the glia are various uh, types of cells that support neurons but yeah yeah um Types of types of brain cells that are that support neurons. A lot of times, they they are responsible for uh, myelination, which is the sheath around the the neurons. Well, astroglia are um, they they have something. They're, they're, there's these large groups of them, and they are connected by something called gap junctions. And what these gap junctions do is they are a slow method of allowing ions between the various cells that make it where they can actually store a charge in them that uh, is only slowly changed. It's not instantly changed, it's very slowly. So multiple repeated repetitions of a given strength of a field would actually be written into the astroglia and would not go away, but kind of stay there uh, for a short period of time because of the way the gap junctions work. And then this turns into that the way that dendrites actually form is by following the charges that are stored in astroglia. So th what this means is, what I'm talking about is the... the so would it, would it be fair to say that uh, the more frequently something fires, the stronger would be the charge in a particular area? So it's like it's recording but it gradients? The, but it would be, it... yes, is recording, but it's not only that, it's recording a specific Pats. pattern of the interaction of all of the waves that are coming from various parts of the brain and impinging on that particular point and then after the fact dendrites grow into that place where there was an, amp an amplified repeated activation repeated activation so, so would it be fair to so say it that physically encodes the the interference pattern that occurred from large-scale synchronized activations of in the way that they that neurons were simultaneously firing and so it is storing and it and so and yes simultaneously and repeatedly therefore it's sort of recording it's an aggregate it's wearing a path of what is happening into like a river yes. in, into the area but but also at the same time the more something is repeated the more likely it seems like dendrites would to grow that so it's sort of like cementing what you're looping frequently it like right which in neuroscience is how long-term potentiation occurs and a variety of other things so so there so there is a um here's the thing understanding that fields are part of the way that the structure of dendrites uh are, are how, how, what what mediates the structure of dendrites what you know mediates the way that um uh synapses are formed and where they are formed and how that equates to information is all explained through this model but it is not yet explained in, in typical neuroscience though they are reticent to adopt this model 
which doesn't really make any sense given that it also it, once you start to understand the way that um, neural networks work you see this holographic principle uh, occurring in neural networks as well and it should be able to it, it, there's no reason why they shouldn't be adopting it more, but they just simply aren't. Um, I guess it's just a lack of understanding. But anyway, so so here, so we can take this model and say, all right, then how? Why does why does the physics theory matter? The physics theory matters because of understanding that there is this central mechanic of the way that everything in the universe tends to work. And seeing that there are these these centralized mechanics that that um, that are in agreement with each other um, is is part of how we see that um, that something that we don't necessarily have, have all the information about is a good and valuable place to start mining for information because that's what this is really about. This is not about saying that this is the one true way to go. This is about saying, hey, here is a, a valuable area for investigation. That's what science is about. It's not about saying that, th that this is absolutely true. It's about taking our search down from being an infinite search to narrowing the, the field in the direction that we should be looking to find proof. And so that's what I'm talking about, is that there is a set of views that all work together in a very mechanical fashion that, um, that support each other because they all work and in a mechanical fashion and provide more information and give a better explanation the and do theory. not rely upon magic. Then so, the current, so provide more information on the current theory. Correct. Because, I'm sorry, but CERN isn't sending us to the moon again, or to colonize space, or to get us hoverboards. So, come on physics, like, step it up. You've been in a funk for 50 years. Not really progressing anywhere. Um, I mean, like, the rockets we have are still from, like, the 50s. No, there's yeah. there's been a lot of, like, not... Well, the thing is, you can Not always, the future can... we were promised, but it's almost 2020, people. Where's our fucking futuristic hover cars and shit? Uh, physics is uh, straying behind compared to uh, biology and neuroscience, where we're you know on the verge of building AI, on the verge of cyberizing humans. Like it's it's leap, no, leaps yeah. and bounds. No, yeah, it's it's, um, it's progressing other, so much faster. Right, biology and, is because right. biology doesn't have any magic in it. But that's what I'm saying. Like come uh, on, physics, catch up. Right, they don't have they don't have any magical beliefs. They uh, the only magical beliefs they have are you know the electron transport train. They have to rely upon physics. But anyway. Um, so the the uh, oh and by the way the, there is a lot more information about how ether theory works there's even like rutherford's mentor you know you, the rutherford uh model of the atom you, you're probably familiar with and you're probably familiar with you know rutherford when it comes to you know atomic physics in general his mentor jj thompson uh had a mechanical explanation of valence which we do not currently have any kind of mechanical it just it just does it just is we don't know why but we did know why when it, when J.J. Thompson created a ring vortex model of how valence worked mechanically based on ether physics, which is present and you know and is responsible for all of our mathematical tools that we have today in physics. So, um, so now now we've we've gotten to the point where we've got we've got a model of um, 
let's let's presume for a moment that this model of physics and this model of the way that the brain works is accurate. Uh, furthermore, one of the other things that is important is that, uh, like Stuart Hameroff is the is the guy who has who, Hameroff and Penrose are the are probably the most uh, well known quantum physics model of consciousness, and uh, he gets into he, he's very fascinated with the way that microtubules work. So microtubules are. Um, they, I'll see if I can find that microtubule walker video. It's yes, such right. A so they they, they provide a, a they provide a structure for for cells, and they they play a lot of interesting roles. And they kind of they they're this interesting self-assembling structure. And whenever you start looking at the way that cellular mechanics works, it's basically all these different little magnets that are the right shape to make everything happen on its own. In other words, it's they machine they end up being little magnet machines. And uh, understanding cellular mechanics at a finite level is kind of important to, to see how there is not any kind of magic down there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, down at that level, there's, there's no magic. It's all just like little configurations, complex configurations of magnetic fields. Uh, so anyway, the microtubules uh, in the Hameroff-Penrose uh, model, Hameroff is, is providing some of the neuroscience part of it, whereas Penrose was uh, giving a uh, he has this i think it's orchestrated objective reduction orc or is what it's called and it, it's this idea it's a many worlds it's the using many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics as a way to say that consciousness is part of defining reality and i i, I would disagree with any model that uh, that specifically puts it in those terms however i think that there is some truth to what they're saying in that uh, it's like a selector, just like a laser, and the angle of incidence shows you a specific image on a holographic plate. Uh, the same would sort of be true with uh, whenever we're dealing with um, you know particles at the quantum level. But going back to the the idea of the Hameroff model and how it works is is with microtubules, and so microtubules they play a role in, for instance, what whenever if you've ever watched. Um, chromosomes be pulled apart, you know, in, in their, their neat little dance of how they, the chromosomes get, get pulled apart mm -hmm. during uh, uh, mitosis and meiosis. They, um, they are crucial in, in that process. And, they're, and the, why they're crucial in that process is because they are like little magnetic threads. And that's important to understand is that they are, they are like magnetic wires and, they, and, and so they attach to things because they are polarized in that way. And they do play a role very specifically when I was talking about how dendrites, the, the, the shape of the dendrites are determined by the charges in the astroglia. Uh, the way that they follow the charge is, be, is by the uh, microtubules. So the microtubule organization, the, the polar, the, the poles that are there actually um, uh, basically magnetic fields in these microtubules are how it follows these paths and how it you know uh, what it's the structure that makes this physically happen so so I believe that there is uh, you know that that Hameroff is uh, kind of in the in going in the right direction <clears throat> to uh, and so there is there are the once again we have to look at the way that these various models um, that are all 
kind of analogies of each other. There are these various analogies that we're attempting to describe the same phenomena in different ways. And that is a very, once again, a very important, you know, principle to understand here is there are analogies that can, that are basically the story of what's happening. And, uh, and then there are the actual recordings of physical phenomena. It's, you know, the recordings are not very questionable since we have a lot of data, but there, our understanding of what the recording means is very questionable. So, um, taking that a bit further, let's uh, think about if space is made of something that is a superfluid. Um, and so we're, we're, once again, we're just kind of presuming that this model is correct for a moment. And uh, if it's a superfluid, then one of the things that occurs in superfluids is these um, uh, filaments. Mm -hmm. So the, the, they're they're called vortex filaments, and they spontaneously arise. Isn't that another paper? Yes, I'm actually referring to Give my oldest paper. That one as well. And that my oldest paper actually pulls all of these things together in one paper. Whereas my most recent papers, I realized that I was giving them too much information at once. And so I needed to pare it down to the most important thing, which was to make sure that people understood the interchangeability of the fluid dynamical model of quantum and relativistic physics right. with our current model. So um, going back to, well, what was I saying? Um, the filaments that oh, arise yes. super... So in superfluids, so, so the, the very best model of, you know, um, Whenever, whenever we look at the, the various models of like general relativity, they're basically, it's based upon rotations in space. There are these, uh, there's a, a lot of, uh, to, to put it very generally, it, it's, it's about rotations, fine rotations in space. And, uh, and you know, whatever you're getting into extending general relativity or looking at the way, you know, general relativity works, um, it's, uh, we're, we're really talking about and the best way I could put it is, is is rotations in space. So let's just let's just you know kind of stay at that because anything further is just going to get too far afield. Mm -hmm. um, the the thing is one of the things that we know about superfluids is that they are they conform to what is inviscid fluid dynamics or mechanics, which is that was what electromagnetism was based on by Maxwell, and um, and all of the behaviors of superfluids. Um, tend to match electromagnetism in the ways that are important. <clears throat> so the that would mean that um, space has a structure, uh, and that it that throughout space would be um, what would be almost undetectable filaments that are rotational structures. The, these uh, vortex filaments. And of course, they, if, they, if this medium was in any way churning, moving, et cetera, it would interact with particles and cause Brownian motion. So there's multiple reasons to believe that, that if this model is correct, then you know the, the whole zoo of particles that we have are abstractions. They are abstractions to fluid dynamics, that we're basically taking all of these different types of movement and rotation and things that are occurring in this substrate which which by the way in in, um, in some of the theories in some quantum theories they, they, they basically say that 
particles pop in and out of existence in space. That's their ideas. They, they just no, literally they pop in. Yes. Why? Where that the the talk about Occam's razor? Why is that? Not? <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, they they keep that's that is part of quantum mechanics. Is that there's these you know uh, or quantum field theory? I think is it, I, there's it's kind of difficult to to, to uh, divide between them, but. Um, the the particles are popping in and out of existence, and uh, I mean they they call them virtual particles for a reason, mm -hmm. uh, because you know the whole idea of particles popping in and out of existence is is absurd by itself. Uh, but you know why they call one you know if the, any description of why any of these things are happening is is just left for you know. So if this is occurring, what's interesting is that uh, what we would have is a um, a structure to space. And whenever you there, whenever you um, look at a magnetic field, uh, one of the things that occurs that a lot of people are not aware of is you can take um, a, a Heelshaw plate, which is basically what you what you do. You take two pieces of glass, stick some ferrofluid between them, and uh, and what you can then do is light it from the side. And if you bring a magnet close to this, you will see a structure pop up. So what is this structure a representative of? Why is it occurring? I mean, just when you look at a ferrofluid brought in, uh, you know, proximity with a magnetic Some field, majestic stuff. A, a structure appears. So the idea of, you know, uh, the lines of force that came all the way from Faraday through Maxwell um, then correspond to um, these uh, vortex filaments. And then the organization and capture of vortex filaments uh, occurring because of the way that uh, materials are arranged would be why we have these persistent magnetic fields because they're made up of this structure. So, so anyhow, the, so the the whole point is, if something has structure, it can store data. So, it opens up a, a huge. Uh, area of speculation uh, for looking at or, or speculation and investigation when it comes to what information can be stored in a medium that is basically a superfluid mm -hmm. and that is made up of uh, vortex filaments which are interacting with everything that is electromagnetic which in, in this model everything would be electromagnetism in one form or another. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm really leaving a whole lot to the imagination here at, at this point because there's uh, this could go on and on. I'd, I'd be talking for days if I continued to, to tell you more about the book that I'm writing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but this is, this is a very good um, uh, primer to what is in the book mm -hmm. and, uh, and specifically, you know, why it is that I'm writing it. So one thing why I was bringing this up on the heels of talking about microtubules is because uh, microtubules may in fact be like one of the things that happens in um, uh, when, when you have superconductors is something called flux pinning. And so what we think of as flux uh, may actually correspond with the what was called Faraday's lines of force and what I'm calling uh, uh, vortex filaments, which we see in a superfluid. And, uh, and so it is pinning these things and holding them in a single place. Uh, and that may be what is occurring 
in anything that is electromagnetic in nature, and it may be what is occurring in uh, cells that have these organized um, uh, microtubules, in which case then we have, just like we have our, we're beginning to, to understand that our biology extends to all of the bacteria, and there is a, there's kind of a smooth continuum between us and the various, and our, and our microbiome, because we find mm -hmm. things like the, like you can change a person's attitudes and uh, their, their, their dominance behaviors, their personality, their everything by simply changing the, the, their microbiome the significantly. Uh, and so, so the, the line between us and our microbiome is becoming uh, more and more blurred, whereas we thought Especially it was Especially much... with poop transplant experiments. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot. No, so, there's so, a lot going so on So the there. truth is the, um, the line between our thoughts and the electromagnetism, uh, the, the electromagnetic environment around us may, well, may in fact be a little more uh, blurred than we think. In other words, there's still sort of a, yes? Is it the Schumann resonance something that theoretically humans need to like not go insane? It's like there's a variety of interactions. Uh, that's, that's the, when when you're in the when you're in the the area of speculation. Yes, there's a lot of ideas of entrainment of, of certain brain wave frequencies, and the, the, our brain waves seem to be centered around the Schumann resonance, which is, uh, you know, uh, Earth's right. Uh, so the, there's a, there's a lot of speculation, but not we're getting way into speculation territory. Fun. Um, and, and that's really all you can do is once you get to a point at which you're trying to identify something that is worthy of investigation, then what you do is you speculate and then you say, okay, but we have to investigate that. We have to find hard data. We have right. to find evidence. But the point here that is interesting that I like in the, when we're talking about speculation is that what I have now described to you is a method by which all of the information which is stored in a human brain extends out to a, to a field which can then continue to store that information. The, in, the interaction of your brain with the electromagnetic field could organize the, uh, the structure of the, what are they called, the uh, vortex filaments, and that this structure then, uh, if it is uh, flowing around the Earth, along with the magnet magnetosphere, which there's indication that there that it is based on the uh, Dayton Miller's tens of thousands of positive um, uh, experiments that detected the E31A prize from the AAAS, the American Academy for Advancement of Science, for proving that there was an ether. Uh, and that's something you've never heard of because it's kind of been suppressed. Um, then it would be, then this fluid would be running like a ticker tape across all of us mm -hmm. and recording those thoughts and so what this interesting speculation leaves is the possibility of recording that which we think of as our our minds and thoughts in the substrate of the of the ether uh, and uh, and then of course it's mixing just like i mean the information is being mixed a tremendous amount but what we've pointed out through holography here is that mixed information can be unmixed that makes me think of the uh, the unintentional recording of voices on pottery. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the same sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So that so there is this possibility of storing every everything that we are, and then furthermore, once we're since we're now you know fully into speculation, fun territory, mm -hmm. um, is the idea of uh, there's there's a lot of different interesting sigh stuff like now now with this perspective you read that that paper 
and uh, and it doesn't seem so completely utterly implausible because what I'm talking about is a, a, a deterministic method of storing information and if what we are is the pattern and organization of information in other words if you think of that as a soul because I mean uh, so let's let's break off for a moment here and, and talk about you know the uh, what exactly is a is any given mind and it is you can take all of the parts to a car and have them in a pile and they are not a car uh you know you take all the parts to an engine you, you know if they're not perfectly put together they are not an engine and furthermore if the timing of the energy flowing through the mm -hmm. through the the engine, engine is not correct it does not go. work <laughs> it doesn't go and so to, so the idea of You're each to say person the consciousness is a process more than a thing right and it is a process that is like a symphony and that you can you can have multiple parts uh, uh, that are and you don't still have the individual uh, symphony so therefore each of us uh, each of our what we would think of as a soul uh would be the configuration and the simultaneous not just the information that is that is in our heads but the combination the holographic combination of all the things that are occurring around us impinging upon that set that you know that uh that crystallized set of information that's stored in our brain mm -hmm and uh and that would be the process would be what we would think of as you know a soul or spirit or, or or what have you and then that would also then be still perhaps stored in this substrate so basically what i've done is i've created a completely deterministic model for by which you could see the idea of a of soul and spirit and even continuance after death so that's a, that was a, an interesting um, so that's how it relates to spirituality and, and that's how it relates to spirituality so <laughs> i mean and that's and, and now keep in mind i this is this is my this is speculation that i find entertaining it's not something that that is you know we have any kind of proof for mm -hmm. uh and so it's it, it's more for fun than than for science but there's a there may be a point at which if we reach a level of investigation that proves that all of these other things are true about the brain about physics about uh, if all of these things are also true then it would be something that you would want to uh you would want to investigate mm. so that's that's the that's the 42. Uh, actually it's not it's not 42 because you have to you know you have to get, get into a reason for existence and all of that and that's that's a uh, that's a whole other talk mm -hmm. <laughs> why but, not but that's, that's just a book. that's just a mechanics for mechanics for um uh everything that, that's me that's i'm done all right <laughs> perfect and you can get uh some of your technical side uh on steampunk physics that in your youtube search and smoke it and then <laughs> uh patreon.com slash seven stage secrets for your papers as well as Secret excerpts and other things for patrons. And now we're gonna go into our patron only um, area and uh, discuss things, maybe more speculation, maybe uh, more about your book or details of some of your papers. Uh, and there's a whole lot of information in mind there. Yeah, so. there's, I mean, there's a reason why I have a paper on, um, uh, not a paper, a, uh, an article on Graham Hancock's site 
That, it's also uh, in your public post on Patreon. Yes, because there is some interesting uh, things about uh, you know the, the 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 level of knowledge about certain things that appears to come from ancient peoples uh, also very strongly correlates with everything I've just described. So that's a, that's another interesting thing. Maybe we'll talk more about that with our patrons in the Cherry Stem After Show. So check out patreon.com slash cherry. Uh, challenger mode, uh, get you after show hangouts. And uh, the more times we do this podcast, the more often we do the hangouts. So unlock them goals, become a patron. It's going to be great. And we will talk to you guys next month. Bye.